0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
1: We have a tendency in my generation to feel like we need to have all the answers. Our position, power, and status, and whatever, and authority and influence kind of forces us to believe that we must have all the answers to do this. And I would argue, actually, we don't.
0: Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show today. Uh, Again, so grateful that you're listening and uh, part of the audience and you are what have helped make this show one of the top leadership podcasts in the world. And I really do mean the world. Just saw some stats this week about Uh, listenership in Ireland and in the Middle East. And so so some fantastic numbers. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Always appreciate those uh, reviews and any opportunities you have to spread the word and let leaders and managers in your life in on the human-centered leadership movement. And our guest today, Jeannie Diffendeifer, is a person who is committed to human-centered leadership and leads an entire organization that does just that. She is the CEO of the Higher Ambition Leadership Alliance. And she's a higher ambition leader herself with an exceptional career that spans corporate executive leadership at Verizon Communications for 28 years, academic board service, stewardship of uh, purpose-driven nonprofits, including more than a decade as a board trustee for Tufts University. And uh, and we're here today to talk about a report that uh, Higher Ambition Leadership Alliance has done. Uh, It's a CEO study. 50 human-centered leaders and uh, some of their practices. What is it that makes human-centered leaders effective, that fuels high performance? And we're going to get into this. So Jeannie, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you, David.
1: It's really my pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, It's it's my pleasure to have you. I really do appreciate it. So I know that you've listened to some episodes of the show before, so you know what's coming. I have to ask you if you could (laughs) just help us to learn a little bit more about you. Through sharing your earliest memory of yourself as a leader?
1: So, my earliest memory as a leader is probably when I got hired right out of college um, as a field supervisor in New England Telephone in Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, as a 23 year old, um, I was responsible for supervising about 20 frontline technicians in the field all over New England. And um, that I knew uh, constituted leadership uh, and making sure that 20 or so people who've literally worked um, in their field over decades who were incredibly good at what they did. And I had the grave responsibility of not only leading them, but leveraging their collective skill set to achieve a common goal. And I learned so much um, in those early years, just to not listen and learn from them, but also appreciate what they brought to the table. And also separating, you know, what is my value to the team? Because I wasn't one of those leaders who grew up in the business. Um, I was an insert, so to speak, uh, right off college and um, supervising them and figuring out a way to create a team and giving them some common mission and purpose to actually want to work for me and deliver and exceed expectations. It was a great test and um, it was so much fun and also a little bit of heartache (laughs) as well as um, just a lot of learning.
0: Oh, I can imagine. So you are fresh out of university and you're supervising people who are experienced in the field. I imagine many of them older than you are.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My, (laughs) my first, my first mid-level management position that I ever held every single person I supervised had been in the field longer and also was older. And uh, that comes with a particular challenge, doesn't it?
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and being first of many um, variables, right? I was the first um non-white male <laughs> supervisor, I think, in the organization's history. Oh wow. And I think I was like a second college hire mm. to supervise them um, as a management trainee. So, in many ways, you know, I took. Um, somebody else's job, right? Because they believed in um, hiring their own, right? Promoting from their own lot. And I was sort of an anomaly.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, listen, but- this isn't a topic that we knew we were going to talk about. That's what I love about these conversations is uh, as we get into these, because this yeah. is practical. Yeah. And the reality is in almost every situation, when you are placed in a position of responsibility and leadership in any organization, it is often the case that you're doing that. And that means somebody else isn't. Yeah. And I'm curious when you And you started off talking about one of the things you learned to do in that moment was to listen really intentionally. Is there anything else for people who are listening and going, I empathize, Jeannie. I've been there. I am there now. (laughs) Any other practical advice you have while we're on the topic?
1: You know, I think over and over again in my long life, I would say, David, that what saved me most often is my sense of curiosity. And um, I was just super curious about what they did. Yeah. And and because they knew genuinely that that was my primary goal is to learn about what they did knowing that that wasn't my role but because I was so interested in their skill set and how they honed this background and experience and sort of deliver together on this not easy work by the way Um, They sort of found out that that was my focus. And because of that, I, I, you know, I hovered over them a lot, but they realized that I was hovering over them because of my curiosity and not because I was checking on them. Mm. And once they realized that they were, you know how it is, human beings love teaching, you know, particularly I find craftspeople, they are so proud of what they know once they realize you have genuine interest in what they have to do, they are more than happy to tell you. Actually, sometimes longer than you like. <laughs> um, and I just ate it up. It was the most incredible uh, experience. And you know, I went back to the organization several years later, because I moved around uh, as the leader of the entire function. So about a thousand people And, and their reaction to me coming back was so positive because they felt that they kind of made me. Mm. And for me to go around and do my thing and then to come back and be part of them almost meant like it was an accomplishment of their own.
0: They were proud. Oh, they were
1: so proud.
0: (laughs) That, that practice that you just described highlight two things that you said. One is curiosity and that is such a valuable leadership char- characteristic, the humility to be curious and investigative. And, uh, and as you said, then the second thing is asking people to teach you, hey, yeah. show me what you do. How'd you do that? And, you know, with particularly with experienced folks with high performers in particular, yeah. such a powerful way to value what they do yeah. uh, and, and let them be able to, to teach and form. Uh, what are they proud of? Uh, and if we really know those things, uh,
1: yeah, it yeah.
0: drives people.
1: And I often tell people just, you know, in some ways, like follow your nose, you know, just follow, follow that smell around and ask people, you know, what is that about? Why did you do that? Um, and it just, it could go to um, many, many positive places I found and they self-regulate themselves, you know, because not every technician, honestly, was a high performer, right? But okay. Um, Even the ones who didn't, in many ways, they self-regulated themselves. And um, because they knew that I had a high bar and I had a high bar for us as a team, um, I didn't really have to worry too much about low performers.
0: That's fantastic. Self-regulating teams are the best as you can build that, (laughs) that sense of pride. I love that. All right. Well, you said get curious, follow your nose, see where that smell leads you. It's led you to be the CEO of the Higher Ambition Leadership Alliance and uh, this community of CEOs who are focused on building a community of organizations that are doing good in the world and, and creating positive change. And so you've, you've, as leader of the organization, the Higher Ambition Leadership Alliance has um, released this study, this 2022 yeah. CEO study called, entitled how human-centered CEOs fuel performance. Yeah, And so my understanding, you, reading through the report, you talked to 50 different human-centered CEOs yeah. to pull out and do the research and pull out those practices. And I want to find out what they had to say, and we're going to yeah. dive into that. Yeah. Before we get into what they had to say, though, I'm curious from a methodological perspective, and I think this has some, some benefit for our listeners too, as they're thinking about their own leadership. How did you qualify... Uh, CEO is a human centered leader. What was it for you? We talk about human centered leadership here all the time. What was you, it? For you?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. So, um, actually, the title of the study was birthed after we called through the interview notes. We didn't go in thinking that I'm going to go talk to human centered leaders. We went in and we talked to 50 CEOs, all different industries, all different sizes. Yeah, and, and when we started to just have a conversation, to be honest, just like this, David, right? And um, I asked him lots of questions um, because I'm a curious being. And because of the time that we were talking to these folks, obviously, as you can imagine, you know, so much was about the last three years, right? And so we were in this unique space of self-reflection for a lot of them, even the ones who've been around for decades, right? And um, I think they had so much reflection to share. And I often ask them the question of like, what what makes you the way you operate? You know, where, where does it all come from, right? And in some ways, the pandemic served as a forcing function for all of us to go inside ourselves um, in ways that I don't think anybody ever imagined. And what came up after, after we went through all the notes was that phrase that we summarize as human centered leadership because so many of them, when I asked them this question, where does this come from, the way you lead? They go back to their childhood. And often it goes back to someone or some people that made a huge imprint in their lives that taught them the value of um, sort of what what is inside you in terms of what is important and that respect and um, some purpose beyond themselves. And it always goes to others, right? Some service of. Um, It's either their parents or grandparents or teachers or coaches, or it's always some other being around them that they learned from when they were little and they talk about how that was embedded deeply inside them as human beings. And often they talked about authenticity Mm -hmm. and um, how The situation forced them to be vulnerable because they were vulnerable, right? One CEO talked about having to institute weekly global town halls where she started to talk about her own struggles, how she was struggling between the internet connection in the house (laughs) where she had to share with her children who was, you know, sort of to go to school at home and the pets and the parents who they couldn't see because uh, they were in nursing homes. And so they were forced, right, to be vulnerable. And I think it helped them sort of to talk about it and how they were kind of struggled, like to run a large organization. You know, some of these companies are like, About 10 companies, right?
0: Yeah. And
1: how that inherently uh, brought out all the listeners of the associates in their organization to realize, oh my God, even she has the same issues I have, and how that became sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of dialogue. Yeah. And that it felt really nice to not to have all the answers but also to know that everybody was in it together. And that transparency, how much, I think they underestimated how much that helped them. Just them being human beings.
0: And so you've identified in the course of all these interviews and conversations, you identified three distinctive ways that, yeah. CEOs feel performance in these human centered ways and so what you've been talking about is number 3 showing up authentic open and vulnerable yeah. to engage and inspire your team. Yeah. So and I think you're right the the for many leaders who, t- who took advantage of the opportunity it was a humanizing event.
1: Yeah.
0: For those who chose to allow it to be as it forced us into that. And the benefit of that as you're saying is connection it's that feeling of, wow, okay, they're a human being. They've got those struggles. I'm connected to them at that level. And I can see the journey. Uh, You know, I think that process of, well, if they're so different than me, it's a disconnect. And, you know, I'm playing a different game. Why bother? Creating that connection. So I'm curious, were there specific practices around authenticity, openness, and vulnerability? Because it doesn't just mean I'm going to throw up all of my emotions and everything I'm dealing with on my team. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. What does it look like if I were to call it productive leadership, authenticity, vulnerability?
1: I would say most most of them, um, again, just follow their curiosity and they started to ask the question, um, a simple question of, you know, human beings, which is, how are you? right? How how are you doing? And not just in passing, but in genuinely being interested in knowing how people are doing. And simply by them paying attention to the well-being of their associates, of anybody that they interacted with, uh, was one practice that they Almost formally adopted because they asked a question because of their genuine interest, but I think they realize how meaningful that really becomes for a person when somebody genuinely is interested in knowing your well-being. Mm-hmm. And um, I certainly learned that um, during COVID. Right? It, it just paying attention, undivided attention to someone else when you're interacting with them, um, it's indescribable the impact that has on people. And I I think that is one practice they all either affirmed themselves, how valuable that is. And I think they also realized that when someone else asks them that, no matter what position you hold, when somebody asks as a human being, how are you really doing? Um, You know, it it builds incredible amount of trust. And I I think that went far for many leaders.
0: So there's an interesting two-way road there that you're describing. So one is that we are asking and actively listening. And so it's not just nodding and go, okay, that's great. And then moving on, but there's a follow-up question. Oh, wow. I hear that that's challenging. What's, how are you feeling about that? Or what's your dog? What kind of dog is it? Or, you know, what what Karen likes to say, the follow-up question to, you got a new puppy is, is it eating your underwear? That's, you know, like there's a, there's a follow-up question. So okay, but that's the one half. The other element was as people are asking you, how are you doing? Yeah. And yeah. There, there's some vulnerability there. Yes. You know, I don't have it all together because none of us right. do.
1: Right. And you know how many, I don't know about you, but I remember um, you know, when you're going crazy 80, 90 hour a week, you know, work and you got a million things going on. Often when somebody asks you, How are you doing? Your immediate answer is, Oh, I'm fine. I'm doing fine. Everything's fine. Everything's good. Right. And I think um, last three years gave us permission to actually stop that and say, I'm not actually fine. I, I am like barely hanging on. <laughs> you know? And um yeah, I can't find toilet paper. Right. I remember talking to people saying, I can't find like fundamental essentials. You know, and then sharing ideas about what can you find the damn thing. Right? It's like where yeah. where are those things?
0: Yeah. Um.
1: So like connecting at the very foundational level as humans, I think it it really uh, taught us a great lesson in taking away the mundane and the superficial, and really boiling everything down to what matters. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think that was really incredible. I mean, little things uh, as I mean, whoever looks at people's backgrounds, unless you're on a Zoom call, right? And, and um, you, you get to actually see a lot, right? Depending on what people are willing to show you. And you know, some people don't have beautiful homes, right? And, and some people are kind of doing it in their bedrooms or I, I've seen people who are hiding in their bathrooms because they have no other place to go. Um, and it just, it just brings everything down to, uh, the rawness of who we are. And I thought, I thought that's, a, for me, it was a great learning.
0: All right. So how do we keep that when everybody has toilet paper, we're not, we're, we're not having to hide in the bathroom anymore. We're, we're past that. If we're fortunate to be, I recognize there's yeah. still some people in different places in the world who are not, uh, and for many of the folks listening, we're, we're through that phase and into whatever the new emerged <laughs> normal in quotes, because what does that mean? How do we hang on to that? What does that look like now?
1: Yeah, I think honestly, it's it's to be determined in my mind, right? And I think many leaders are striving to keep the good that we learned out of the last three years. And not return to sort of the inertia of what's um, come after. I have to say, most companies are still struggling with this hybrid work, however yes. you define it. Yeah. Right? You
0: see it too. Yeah.
1: Right. So um, we we the pendulum swung like nobody wants to go in. Everybody wants to you know work remote, and then it swung back to say, wait a minute, that's like bad for mental health people need to come together and, you know, do face to face. Now we're sort of um, back in the middle again, where I was just talking to um, a CHRO at one of our member companies yesterday, we were in person, actually. And and I was asking her about, you know, where you have, where have you settled on this? And she said, you know, we're sort of like, you know, toying with a middle ground somewhere. Um, so about, you know, 60 to 70% of the people come in on any given day. We've tried a variety of methods. Um, sometimes it's good to bring people back into the office for a per- like specific purposeful reason. Why? Right? Some collaboration activity or uh, meetings or something like that. There's no use in bringing everybody back and everybody doing Zoom calls in their offices, right? That's makes- almost
0: worse than, yeah.
1: Exactly. You're not even in a comfortable environment, right, when you're doing that. Uh, so I think everybody's trying to figure it out. I think, though, world has forever changed. I don't think we are ever going back to five days a week in the office, no matter what reason. I think those days are over. I think there's also, I find, generation gap. So the boomers, um, we love the face-to-face interaction, you know, hugs, handshakes, coffee together and um, water cooler conversations, you know, walking from my office to your office because I thought of something and I just want to share. (laughs) Um, I find that um, latter part of the millennial um, generation and Gen Z's because they're digital natives and because, They're conditioned to interact with other human beings through digital means. They're 100% comfortable collaborating online, right? And they're just better at it than we are. They are, yeah. Right? And they just have a different definition of that. And I don't think they're ever coming back 100%. Mm -hmm. So we need to find this sweet spot where we combine the Benefit of being in person and collaborating in person um, and the human connection, physical connection, along with honoring, honestly, the natives of latter generations who effectively produce the best work when they're given the freedom and the space and the capacity to generate goods and ideas on their terms. And I think everybody's in search of it,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's no one answer, is there? It's different for every team, every industry. Uh, I mean, lots of different types of situations. And I think you're right. I think it has changed irrevocably. And the one thing that I would call attention to that you said is when we're bringing people together, this is, again, one of those things that I think has so shifted if we'll take advantage of it. When we're bringing people together, are we being intentional? Right. It's the, you know, like if I think of a menu, you know, there's the buffet and you've got, you know, kind of your, your normal, ordinary fare, then you've got your super fancy meats or fish or whatever. Like that's the in-person time. You're going to use that (laughs) really, really intentionally. Right. Right. Take full advantage of that. And, and as you're thinking about it from a leadership perspective, are you making it something that people really want to attend and want to be there because it's so valuable and there's no other good substitute for it? No, you know, and if we approach it that way, then people are going to have some interest in it and, and it becomes a, a momentum energy builder as opposed to a, Oh, I have to. Yeah.
1: And, and again, I think, um, the ones who really have learned deeply um, during this time also feel okay to sort of let go of the controls, right? Yeah. Yeah. We have a tendency in my generation to feel like we ha- we need to have all the answers, right? Because our position, power and status and whatever and authority and influence kind of forces us to believe that we must have all the answers to do this. And I would argue, um, Actually, we don't. And in fact, I think the respect comes from the younger generation when they interface with people who are honest about the fact that they want you to also come into play in solving the problem. And they wanna be co-creators. Yes, um, I talked to one member CEO who told me that um, she actually ditched the whole notion of uh, office and she she has this notion of remote first, um, so it's a fundamental, uh, sort of understanding that everybody can be remote first. So when they decide to come together, it's super intentional. Yeah. They create the reason why, and then they pick the, um, central location where they want to come together, uh, and they rent space. Then they go in and they do work. Right. Which I think is actually kind of cool.
0: It is. Right? It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Well, you know, in the in the Higher Ambition Leadership Alliance CEO study, you, you know, we've been talking about the third practice that you identified in these conversations about authenticity, transparency, um, and all of the trust that that builds and the connection and influence. Uh, I want to go over to number one, the very first practice, which is building high trust relationships with stakeholders. Yeah. Um, and consequently, powering innovation and agility, because there were some really interesting uh, concepts in here that I think uh, I haven't seen expressed exactly that way, or maybe floating in the ether, but you had some really, what came out of the, the report here, I thought was really powerful. So let's talk about this concept of building high trust relationships with stakeholders. Cause okay. All of us, nobody listening to this show doesn't know the word. Oh, I need, yeah. Stakeholder. I got to have a relationship yeah, yeah, with my yeah, stakeholders. Yeah. Fine, fine, yeah, fine. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you're talking about something deeper than that here.
1: Well, so again, it's, it's fascinating because when you call the conversations um, to what are they really saying, what we found is that, again, the situation forced them to look beyond themselves because they had a real business problem. And that is when they looked at the value chain, right? For them to produce a piece of good or service for their end customers. And many of our member companies are in um life sciences organizations where they were working full-time, right? Mm-hmm. And so they did not have the option to go remote. And they needed to have the supply chain flowing because they were literally responsible for the rest of the population's health, well-being, right? Yes. And what they told me is it's funny, it the the in the Inherent nature came out, which was, wait a minute. It's one thing for us to sort of protect ourselves from this thing, and we need to taking care of our people. So CEOs 100% of the time told me everything else fell away other than two things. One is safety of their associates, and two is continuity of the business. hmm And when they took a look at the continuity of the business, it involved so many other constituents than themselves. Yes. And then they started to look at, wait, so if I have suppliers who need to get paid and I can't pay them because my goods are not leaving the whatever, right, (laughs) then we, we can't like let them go bankrupt because I can't pay them. So we need to do something else. And conversely, customers who I am shipping stuff to are either telling me, don't ship me stuff or you can ship me, but I can't pay you because I'm not selling it to anybody. So again, it was a forcing function where they had to look outside their business and say to their value chain, can we come together and figure out how do we sustain the life cycle of all of us in the entire ecosystem than just our autonomous selves? And they were able to actually negotiate um, some very unique agreements with these constituents to say, let's you know, throw out the 30 day, 60 day payment cycles. Um, you know what? I'm going to let you keep my inventory and you don't have to pay me. And then for um, suppliers, um, I am going to like, take your stuff. I'm not going to sell it. I'll pay you half. I'll pay you other half when things. So they sort of made these very nuanced agreements for the specific purpose of keeping everybody afloat. Yes. Yes very different set of objectives than when I was in business, right? (laughs) Which is stick to that 45 day payment cycle, come echo high water, you do it, right? So I think it it sort of made all of us um, think beyond ourselves and really think about the entire industry or the entire um, end-to-end value chain to think about how do you all not only survive, with the objective of thriving at the end.
0: And there's a, a such a practical opportunity skill, I think for every leader listening right now that comes out of what you just described. And, and the way that you capture this in the report is uh, to challenge your team to expand their definition of who is a stakeholder. Yeah, And that's one of those statements that at first blush is like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, we've got, suppliers and we've got our our partners and we've got, okay, I need to be thinking about them too. And I've got customers and obviously, and the customers. But when we really push that question, who are the stakeholders? And we really expand that definition of who and what our business affects in the world, it really transforms the lens through which you're doing everything, the community that you're serving, that you're a part of, the the, your business's impact on the environment and on other human beings who might not be customers, right. You know, it's, it's, it's a game changing way of looking at the work you're doing. So it's one of these, uh, when I saw that, uh, challenge your team to expand their definition of who is a stakeholder. That's a really practical thing. Every leader can do. And the answers that we come up with might not always be easy. Are they?
1: And, um, and being okay with the fact that it's not easy, right? Which which is always the hardest part. And one CEO, I remember him telling me that when um, George Floyd murder happened and he decided that he needed to actually speak with his black leaders because he had them in the organization. For a variety of reasons, like we all do, right? We don't necessarily think about gathering them together to talk to them, right? But this triggered a a thought in his head to actually get them together and talk to them. And he was blown away at the personal stories. Mm -hmm. How every single person he talked to in the room, who he's known for years. Yeah. Told them personal stories that he couldn't quite fathom. Yeah. Um, because they never shared and he never asked.
0: And he never asked.
1: Right. Yeah. And yeah. it was such an incredible learning for him and a lesson in this, again, the human center, deep listening part, right? And paying attention. I, I always say to people, you know, the biggest gift. We can give one another is our time and our attention and um it it just it's so it's so deep and meaningful if you do it right
0: and Jeannie, as you're you're talking about these things so agree so much and we've had so many guests who have talked about the the necessity of being uncomfortable and or being comfortable with discomfort Yes, put it that way. And then you just mentioned the aspect of time. Yeah. One of the challenges that comes up regularly as we have these conversations is is time, because of the results, because of the outcomes that have to be achieved, and for every leader, it's one of the probably the most common questions that come up, particularly when we're talking about human centered leadership. Is okay, in my heart. I say yes. I want to inquire and connect with other human beings, and I want to listen deeply, and I want to create white space so that I'm not go 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 all the time, and I can reflect and think, and and, and I need to be thinking more deeply about my stakeholder and so forth. And gosh, when am I going to get the work done? And uh, and people struggle with that. Yeah. And so I'm curious. If you encountered either in your interviews or from your own career, your own experience, any best practices around how people manage those tensions?
1: Um, gosh. When you find out, will you let me know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what I found, so I retired after you know a long time at Verizon, as you know, uh, about ten years ago. and, Um, If there's one thing I learned in the last 10 years is how much my life was sort of being carried on through inertia. Autopilot. Right. And never having the chance to stop to say, why am I doing this again? Mm Right? Right. Why am I going to 15 meetings a day back to back? Don't even have a split second to run to the restroom or grab my lunch? Um, why are so many people on these meetings? Yes, on these Zoom calls on these. why are all these people on the email, right? Um, and I think we do not give ourselves an opportunity to stop and ask the why. Yeah. You know, it's it's what Simon Sinek says, right? Start with a why. And I do think that we're conditioned to recognize success as a result of being busy and not as a result of being purposeful mm-hmm. and and thinking through the outputs rather than activity, right? and um we're just part of that big machinery and we feed each other in that regard because um i remember you know in my mid 30s 40s right being crazy busy running around the world running this big organizations thinking oh my god if i you know if i could only just stop for a day or you know if i wasn't so busy all the time um, but in fact what i didn't recognize frankly was the fact that a lot of it was self-inflicted
0: <laughs> yeah you know yeah i have realized um, that myself as well yeah.
1: <laughs> right yeah and it's it's um we need to help these leaders actually not only come to the realization that activity doesn't mean accomplishment yeah but that they underestimate the the capacity and the competencies of their teammates
0: and themselves i think as well yeah. you know we have like if i'm thinking about practical ways of breaking that yeah cycle that you just talked about that autopilot that habituation yeah. that uh, inertia and it takes the consciousness that you're talking about so how do we create that consciousness i think one of the questions at least this is one i have found valuable yeah. for me yeah. to, to force myself to think differently is okay these are the outcomes that need to be achieved. Yeah. How would I achieve those outcomes if I had one less day in the week to work mm. or one less person on my team Yeah. or, you know, create a limitation that forces you to think creatively or differently. I would, you know what? I would tell these three people, I cannot come to your meeting. Yeah, I can't here's what I can do. I'm going to send this person because they have all the information you need, or we both don't need to be there or what have you, or I would do this, or I would do that. You know, it starts getting us thinking and breaks some of that habituation. Yeah. As a, as a technique.
1: Yeah. I love it. I love it. And um, I am constantly looking for ways where we all can actually um, slow down a bit uh, and focus on the, Uh, effectiveness of what we do versus the activity level. And um, yeah, it's, it, we all can use it uh, whether or not you're a CEO or, you know, frontline employees.
0: Yeah. We all have some ownership and, and, and it's one of those, no one forces you to do anything at the end of the day, we all have choice and your team has choice and we can embrace that. Uh, Everything gets easier. We can be making better choices. Right doesn't the mean they're easy is, choices.
1: I, yeah. The other thing I find that as leaders, we occupy our brains so much with things that we have no control over. Mm. So if you actually think about how your mind gets spent on a daily basis, I would argue that most of the time it's about ruminating about something that already happened or thinking about a future that hasn't happened yet. And we just miss the present and not realizing that every act you're about to do, which is the present, will in fact be in the past minute later. (laughs) And then you're so occupied with what you're thinking about doing in the minute in the future. It's just so fascinating because I find my mind, because my mind is just so full of stuff, I have to force myself to sort of block out, yes. you know, the past that I don't have control over because I'm always sort of like, hmm, I wonder if I could have done that differently or what was that about? And then I'm thinking about, oh, what can I do tomorrow? That You know, it's just so much occupation, right? With things that honestly have no relevance in the moment.
0: So true. So true. <laughs> so what I what I hear you saying there is to really think about what we're thinking about. Yeah. And as we become more aware of that and cultivate that awareness, that mindfulness of of what our mind and where our brain and energy is going, again, can we start redirecting that to what is productive and helpful for us versus what's ultimately a waste of time and energy?
1: Yes. 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 And paying attention to what's in front of you. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Being present. Talking with Jeannie Diffendeifer here. She is the CEO of Higher Ambition Leadership Alliance, Uh, we're talking about their report on uh, the CEO study that they did 2022 uh, about human-centered CEO and their leadership practices. Um, Jeannie, in a a moment, I've got another question. There's one more uh, practical element of the report I want to call out, but uh, tell us where we can connect with you. Uh, download the report, maybe learn more about your work, anything else that that we should be knowing about how to connect with you and all the good work you
1: do. Uh, Thank you, David. So the best place to get all of this really rich information is on our website, hireambition.org. We have the CEO study right there that you can download. We also have highlights from our most um, recent in-person CEO summit um, that we have summarized on our website, as well as we had a virtual gathering of our CEOs and senior leaders in March. And we have highlights of those as well. In addition to a lot of the research um, that's conducted by our executive fellows and academic partners and others. So there's lots of great stuff there, as well as on LinkedIn. You can find us on LinkedIn as well.
0: All right. Wealth of resources. Uh, Definitely encourage you to connect with Jeannie, that's Jeannie Diffendifer. And I will put the links in the show notes because her name is not spelled the way it sounds. So we'll, we'll make sure and get that all for you. Uh, encourage you to connect with her. Okay, Jeannie, the, the final topic I wanted to address here uh, in the time that we have. So there is a whole nother, uh, we've talked about uh, two out of the three pillars, if you will, of the practices that, uh, the one we haven't talked about is culture. Um, which we'd have a whole other conversation about. But one more element I want to draw out on this first one about uh, building high-trust relationships. It's one of my favorite topics. I talked about it uh, in my first book I wrote, and so I'm oh-so-curious to find out more, and that is celebrating failures to encourage more risk-taking. And this is one of those topics that I love as a concept I mean, I really do. I'm very passionate about it and it's hard yeah. to do in practice Yeah, because when there's an actual failure of some kind, it, our, our human reaction more often than not is frustration, not celebration. So how do we, let, let's just walk us through celebrating yeah. failures to encourage more risk-taking.
1: You know, it's so funny. I find that um, highly capable, intelligent, competent leaders have a hard time with what they call failure because of our definition of it. In fact, I would argue that when I look at my life in the corporate world, I really didn't see what I will call too many failures, but what I did see is a lot of leaders having lots of agita about the potentiality of what they thought was a failure. And as a result, it almost changed the way they behaved because of their fear of failure. And when when I asked people, what are you afraid of? They couldn't answer really, because there wasn't a single thing they could have done, at least in my world. There would have been such a abject failure that it would have changed their life in any shape or form yeah but it was such a self-defined notion of how they how we see ourselves and so i think we just need to really change the de- definition of it you know and do we have some really well-known failures out there oh, 100% right and we could name a few right But outside of that, for most of us, it's really confined by our own fear of something that we don't even know because it's so relative. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, even the phrase celebrating failure, I would say we should celebrate not having the fear of it. Um, And if you actually face the world with that work, and say, you know what, today I am going to work on not being fearful of whatever I define myself as this bar of how I need to be, behave, whatever, achieve, and just kind of let that all go and see what life brings me. And frankly, if I screw up, and it can be a little screw up, like I treated somebody wrong, that's not who I am, right? Or I was judgmental, or um i should have kind of stepped up and admitted that you know what that report has some errors in it and i should have i should have stepped up and owned that it those it's combination and cumulative effect of those little things that combine get into this big thing in our heads about oh my god that was such a potential failure and you know i screwed up or there was there was like a potentiality of screw up i, I think it's actually we make it so much bigger than what it is
0: yeah and when we do that, as you were saying, there's that cumulative effect for ourselves where it squashes our initiative and our taking of risks, but then it trickles down and it does the oh same my God. thing to 100%. our teams. <laughs> right. And they're going to take even less than we do.
1: That's right. And I, you know, it's funny because, you you know, I I, I don't know if you agree, but I always felt running a large organization was almost like being a parent, right? And I, I learned the hard way with my two kids, children are all about what they watch it's not about what they're told right and your teams are exactly the same way everybody watches you how you behave and i I remember saying i remember saying to my people every chance i got the minute they saw my mouth and my feet separate themselves Mm. somebody needed to kick me Mm. right (laughs) and say whoa wait a minute something's not aligned there because I felt it was so important for us to actually do what we say we'll do.
0: And it's not just permission. It's an invitation that you say. Yes. Like my expectation is that someone's going to kick me and I will only be upset if someone doesn't kick me. Exactly.
1: <laughs> right. All yeah. of us to do need yeah. to do more of that.
0: We do. And we need to do it for one another. Yeah. It's one of my uh, uh, early in my career, I came across the story of um, it was uh, a Cal- Calgon. Uh, one of those uh, companies and they had a uh, an annual award for the best idea that didn't work. And <laughs> I love it. I love that concept, right? Of, okay, we tried, we made an yeah. effort. It's not a failure. It's a, we tried something and now That's we're closer right. to success. That's right. Uh, you know, I'm even thinking in our, I'm, I'm recognizing that my next team meeting, I need to do this because Be we've test. had some initiatives this last year over the last 18 months. Some of them worked gloriously and some of them didn't work the way we hoped, but they weren't right. failures. They're learning their opportunities and hey, and you know, that's the way it works. So can we celebrate those that the taking, of I love
1: that idea. I'm going to do the same.
0: All right, well, here we go. There's a commitment to one another. All right, listeners, I don't know if you're getting any value of this, but Jeannie and I at least are making a commitment (laughs) to one another and our own leadership. So I sure hope you will, listeners. I hope that you will challenge your team to expand their definition of who's a stakeholder, that you can find opportunities to reframe what failure and success actually mean and encourage more risk-taking by celebrating those opportunities when they work, when they don't. Mm. And part of that, and Jeannie, you just emphasized this, and I think it's important to note, is we're all going to make errors. We're going to screw up let's take responsibility for it. Let's own it, make it right as quickly as we can and move forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and it just, we sleep better at night, all of us.
0: (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Well, on that note, Jeannie Jeannie Diffendiefer, CEO of uh, Higher Ambition Leadership Alliance. Thank you so much for being a guest uh, with us today on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul.
1: My pleasure, David. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.
0: As did I. Well, listeners, do everything we talked about, sleep better at night, and be the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c sweetradio.com.